Optimism Vaccine. I'm Steve, and uh, joining me this week, I got Adam Myros, uh, we got Jake Trapila, and we got Jack Eason. And I don't know, man. I'm I'm exhausted. I've I've been dick deep in snow for the past two hours trying to dig my car out. And also, I thought this was going to be an easy week, you know, because we got we got a request from one of our listeners, and they were like, "Hey." why don't you do Crocodile Dundee? And I, I brought it up to you guys, and I was like, you know, somebody wants us to do the Crocodile Dundee series. And we all thought, well, that's okay. Sure. I like Crocodile Dundee when I was a kid. How bad can it be? And uh, I, I think I owe you guys a formal apology. <laughs> Just crickets. Crickets. Um, we're, a little, we're a little thrown because... <laughs> How, because you you just introduced all of us at once so people may not know who we are as we speak and i'm jake tropila oh, oh great the catchphrase hey mm. steve were you outside and you were saying to yourself oh boy that's not a shovel this this here's a shovel this here's a shovel yeah um i i actually we have like five shovels in our garage and and none of them work particularly well so i just kind of rotate through them and each one uh, pains me in, in a different way. So it's it's been a really enjoyable weekend, I'd say, so far. Um, but, yeah, goddamn, I don't know, man. Like, I, I'm starting to question all of my tastes as an eight-year-old. Is it possible that I didn't enjoy good things as a small child? <laughs> I didn't even enjoy Crocodile Dundee 2 as a child, personally. I thought it was boring even then, which is saying something, because pretty much every movie you watch at that age is, is great shakes. But Croc 2... Always a bad movie. Always a bad movie. I don't know. Well, I mean, I guess let's let's start at the beginning. So uh, we watch Crocodile Dundee. Paramount Pictures presents Your Paul, Senor Meek. Paul Hogan. Um, hey, my man, what's that? Uh, wait. As Crocodile Dundee. You got a light, buddy? Yeah, sure. Yeah. And your wallet. You've got a knife. <laughs> Nice. I'm not going to let him finish the line. Not going to happen. <laughs> not going to give him that dignity. Um, wow. Yeah, that's that's how I feel about Mr. Paul Hogan. This movie really fucked me up for a lot of different reasons. I think when you're a kid, you kind of think that like everybody is just old. Like there's kids and then there's old people. And you're really not able to easily parse out like the, the differences here. But... I think it's important before we talk about any of the Crocodile Dundee movies to point out that this came out in like 1986. Paul Hogan was in his mid to late 40s when this movie came out. He's like a legit old guy or like pushing into every old day guy. Too. Oh, he absolutely <laughs> does. And, and you know, you're, you're watching these movies and you're like, damn, he looks like shit. And <laughs> the, the female lead who he has zero chemistry with, you're like, well, I mean... She's probably, maybe she's like uh, in her late 30s and she just looks good for it. No, 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 no. She's like late 20s, like 27. He's like 47. And he looks like a, just a weathered handbag or like grandpa's wallet. Like he just has these indentations in his face. And it, because 
He's he's an older guy. Like he looks every day of 47, okay? And that's fine because he it's not like he's a big Hollywood star, but you're like, "Oh, wow, Jesus, man. Like you are you are no spring chicken." Well, he was a blue collar like worker before he was an actor too, I think. Oh, I, yeah. It's definitely yeah. like out in the sunshine like he's been living his life and his skin shows he does. It's like all he needs is like a bulging red nose and, you know, from like rosacea or whatever. And he'd be like my uncle or something. I don't know. Um, but he like, yeah, he worked as a construction worker. And then he he's basically like the Australian Larry the Cable Guy for a while. So throughout the 1970s and into the 1980s, he's got like the Carol Burnett show. But hey, it's me, Paul Hogan, Australian man. And he does that shtick. And then he sort of takes off because in the 1980s, culturally, I, I think Americans were starting to discover that like, ooh, there's exotic things like, oh, I had Chinese food for the first time. Can you believe it? Like all this exotic shit starts to come into the suburbs. And for some reason, that includes Australia. And I'm not sure why, but Americans, they have this weird fascination with Australia. And Paul Hogan is doing the Australia Tourism Board commercials at the time. And so that kind of leads to him writing the Crocodile Dundee script, which leads to Crocodile D Dundee getting made and becoming a giant cultural phenomenon that grossed $300 million and got nominated for an Oscar for Best Screenplay. I was going to say, the Oscar-nominated uh, yeah. script Can for you Crocodile believe? Dundee. I mean, I mean, I, it's shocking, shocking that Paul Hogan lost for Crocodile Dundee. Uh, ended up going to Hannah and her sisters, which, you know, and, and lost to My Beautiful Lordette, uh, Platoon, Salvador, and Hannah and her sisters. Those are the other nominees. And somehow, Crocodile Dundee lost. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Um, but, yeah, and and here we are. Cultural phenomenon, 300 million worldwide. And I, I figured at the very least, maybe the script... <laughs> would be okay like i i thought this would just be kind of dated but fun and watchable but it barely hits those notes i, I i'm completely just overwhelmed by how much i didn't enjoy this i i don't know jack i need i need the european perspective was crocodile dundee a a, a thing in ireland oh it, it definitely was yeah um just like you said, it's sort of strange that, like, the, the exoticism of Australia is like, was, was Australia ever really exotic? I, I don't know why that would be the case. But yeah, no, um, Crocodile Dundee 1 and 2 were big. I remember seeing them on TV plenty of times as a kid, um, and I remember enjoying them a lot. They seemed like a lot of great fun. Boy, you know, it's, you don't ask questions like why the wrinkly man is with the, the much, much younger woman. Thong <laughs> <laughs> lady. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, which, I mean, hey, they're, they, I'm sad, I was sad to learn. I mean, or to pour one out uh, in research for this podcast, find out they divorced in like 2013 or so. They're, they're I can't believe they were married. Can you, yeah. uh, is there any chemistry between the two of them in, in the movie at all? Like, I thought it was hilarious. It might just be that Paul Logan's terrible at acting. I mean, he's he's kind of got that uh, <laughs> that Jerry Seinfeld effect. Uh, you know, he's like the worst guy on screen at every at all turns. Um, well, he's got this. He's got like a unique gift in these movies, where this first film is presumably when he'd be the most raw performer. But it's easily the only time he seems remotely engaged with the screen, like. He's there are times where his physicality is somewhat compelling in this film, 
And going forward, there are zero times where he's ever even remotely compelling. It's a screen presence. Yeah. And he does, he has this thing where he's not a great actor, especially early on here in like Croc 1, Croc 2. Um, but he has, it's not even screen presence. There's something just naturally likable about his laid back personality. But at the same time, there's this conflict because, like you said, not the best actor in the world, not great movies that he's acting in. So what are you really left with? Uh, not a lot. Sorry, Paul. I tried. I really tried. I loved you when I was eight. I just I can't deal with your shit these days, the, man. The whole it's too concept much. is really confusing because it's like he's an Australian outback man, but it's like they, they constantly reset how much cultural awareness he has depending on whatever joke they're trying to like hammer home at a given time. So he's like, he doesn't understand, you know, restaurants. He doesn't understand toilets. He doesn't understand, you know, limousines or whatever. But then at another point, he kind of like goes like, oh yeah, it's just like the movie Jaws. And it's like, so he has seen Jaws, but he doesn't mm-hmm. understand like New York. He doesn't understand anything else. Uh, the, the whole character is honestly looking at it now it's real thin there's it's a very oh, sure. thin material spread out over an aching 100 minutes and somehow the sequel is even longer than that the first sequel see the yeah. problem here is is well there are a couple like it's a very strangely structured film because the the first half is like some out of africa shit or something like it's this sort of grand opulent hollywood romance of like this city girl going into the beautiful countryside and falling in love and having this awakening and then it immediately pivots to this fish out of water thing with again very very sort of larry the cable guy-esque antics and it is jarring and there are times where you can really see why this is a crowd pleaser but it's hard to ignore the structural problems because there's no conflict in this movie at all like I kept waiting for it to emerge. It's it's hinted at early in the film that uh, Paul Hogan is actually a uh, poacher and he's killing mm-hmm. these crocodiles. And it's like, oh boy, this is going to come back. It's going to be a source of strife in their relationship. It's like, no, no, it's gone. Never mentioned again <laughs> over the course of yeah, three. It movies. doesn't like <laughs> it. It's it's really obvious too that it should be so because they're like, oh, you know, killing the crocodiles. You're like, well, you're not supposed to kill the crocodiles. Huh? Winkity wink. You're like, oh, okay, that's gonna, that's gonna come. Nope, you're right. Just never, never again. You know, to to the point where in the sequels they just have to turn him into a crime fighter for <laughs> utterly <laughs> confused reasons. I mean, I, I don't know why that was a the direction they chose. Yeah, well, this is something. What is he in this movie? Nothing. He's he's, he's, a he's somehow a media sensation for God knows why. I'm like, what is this? Oh, article? The whole setup like, is <laughs> is nuts. The fact that okay, so correct me if I'm wrong here. This this woman, she's a journalist at, I guess this would be like the New York Times or something. Sure. And she is paid to go to the middle of nowhere Australia because she heard about a guy who fought a crocodile. Yes. <laughs> and they pay for her to go down there, stay there, and then when she decides that there's even more of a story here, she brings Paul Hogan, Crocodile Dundee, she brings him back to New York where we have our nice little fish out of water, like, whoa, it's so wacky that he's here. And they put him up in like the Ritz Carlton for an (laughs) indefinite amount of time. And then she just writes like a weekly column about the wacky Australia man. And that pays the bills. And no, like, 
I, I get the journalism used to be a little different, but keep in mind they're also <laughs> paying his business partner. Uh, they're floating the business while he's away as well. Yep, that's true. That's this true. It's a different era. I, this whole thing made no sense to me because I'm like, well, this is not a, like a newspaper story that would air. It would be like back page human interest bullshit one one day, and then it would be gone forever. But I guess it it clears up in that the reporter ends up being the daughter of like the magnate who owns the newspaper. So I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. it's just complete nepotism bullshit. Yeah. So she'd well, be like like Jeff Bezos' daughter or something like that. Which yeah, okay, I guess so. I, I think it's telling. <laughs> one of the things I learned just kind of doing a little background research on this one is, um, and I think it's a good summation of the entire series. Is if you go to the Wikipedia page for Paul Hogan and you look at the early life section, it just reads. At the start of his career, Paul Hogan claimed he was born in Lightning Ridge, New South Wales. To appear more interesting, he was actually born in Sydney. <laughs> He's also actually born a 40-year-old man. <laughs> Some like, Benjamin Button motherfucker. But that's the summation of the whole thing. Is like, you know, Sydney is, I, I believe, Australia's most populous city. And it's just this guy who invented this character of an outback guy who just you know does his own thing and it's like his entire career seems to just be founded on this kind of stupid idea of a guy who doesn't know anything about the outback who mm-hmm. has kind of you know just created this character to carry it through and it's really i mean what struck me about this movie um there, there's plenty of weird things in it um but he goes to new york as like uh to to be lured in by the wealth his his girlfriend whatever is product nepotism effectively she's got a rich suitor who's an asshole who paul hogan just routinely just physically assaults uh, in a way that's not really cool um and you know it's it's all the wealth and the big he's like saying like the waldorf astoria or whatever um but there's like this weird class dynamic where he's like a man of the people so he doesn't mm-hmm. hang out with the rich people. He's very awkward then. He hangs out with, like, black people, and he gets on really well with them because, you know, he's, like, he, he's just a cool, laid-back guy. But he also can talk to animals, and there's this really awkward through-line through this that he's, like, a guy who's hung out with Aborigines in Australia and cultivate this kind of communication skill where he can learn... He, he kind of lives with nature, and nature suddenly becomes somehow, like the aborigines in australia and the working class in america in a very to me kind of discomforting kind of uh, gathering of like he can talk to both like wildebeest and black people (laughs) (laughs) yeah crocodile dundee is like he's like the guy that that he you know he he drops the n-word and then people are like, whoa, man. He's like, no, it's okay. I have black friends and they said I could say it. It's totally cool. Like, just, I mean, I, literally, I that's works. pretty much <laughs> when we get down the line to film four. That's pretty much where we're at. It, it's just a really awkward kind of vision of, uh, yeah, I mean, it's all predicated on a lie because he's clearly just some city white guy who, you know, working class, sure. But like he was never... He has no fond relationship with the Aborigine people. The jokes mm-hmm. about the Aborigines in all these movies are basically that they're actually far more assimilated into white culture than they let on. And they don't let on so white people leave them alone. It's very funny, but they all have like cell phones and they, you know, I don't know what else they do. I passed out for parts, I'm pretty sure. But, you know, mm-hmm. it's a running it's a running joke. It's just a really ham-fisted thing. It hasn't aged well there's lots of elements of this that have an age well, but it, it does kind of, there's just a laziness to the comedy here and also just an underlying 
a kind of cruelty, or uh, maybe not cruelty, but just kind of a complete lack of self-awareness on Pogan's part of who he's, you know, what he's mining his comedy from. He's, you know, he's kind of like piggybacking on Aboriginal and black culture to create this kind of laid-back, cool, white guy character. And it's, it's just kind of shitty, and it's not even, a, you know, it's not even funny at the end of it all. You might forgive more of it if it was actually really hitting some notes, but this is really... Like, this is pretty much, watching this, I'm kind of imagining that Paul Hogan's TV work was very much in line with, like, the the sketch shows I grew up watching, like The Fast Show and Harry Enfield and Friends and stuff like that, you know, all just, like, catchphrases and exactly the same thing happening every single week, and it's, like, funny because you know what's going to happen. And mm-hmm. um, I can't imagine his comedy is, is much more nuanced considering what he made, what brought him to feature film, which theoretically should bring out the best in him. Just a, a really awkward film, and it's and this doesn't even bring up the fact that he seems to go out of his way at all times to basically remind everyone that he that gay people make him incredibly uncomfortable. Just like if everything else didn't age well, he just throws that one in as well. Yeah, it's uh, one of there's a there's a joke, and then there's a callback to the joke. So there's like this, <laughs> it's like the big gag throughout Crocodile Dundee is he's in a bar and he's talking to a woman and then one of his his cool friends is like yo crack man that's that's not a lady and he goes oi and he grabs <laughs> like just grabs the crotchal region there and uh and just go hey Sheila's a himbo <laughs> yeah and then everybody in the bar goes, ha, 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 ha. And the woman's humiliated and runs out of the bar. Um, <laughs> and then you're like, well, it's like a genuinely horrific <laughs> scene. Like, because she, she clearly, yeah. she's mortified and grabs all her shit and just like tears out of the bar. <laughs> and the whole bar erupts in laughter. It it's is cheering yeah. for him. Awful. Yeah, they, they're cheering for him. Like, he just fucking, like, pulled a, a lost child out of a well like he just fucking did the greatest <laughs> deed in human history they're just yes we love you crocodile man you did it it's crazy and then so then later down the line he has to go to some hoity-toity party and he encounters a, a, another woman but this time he's he's wise to the game and I, I thought at first, like, because you could kind of, they show, like, the back of her, and they're like, oh, I bet it's going to be the same woman, and then he's going to have to have, like, a reckoning here with what he did earlier. It's like, no, it's a totally different one. Does the same thing. Oi! Oh, grabs <laughs> the crotch. <laughs> and then uh, his, his, uh, his journalist girlfriend lady is just like, oh, it's okay. He's Australian. <laughs> I love like, the idea that, like, Australians are... Uh, <laughs> None of this makes any goddamn sense. Yeah, the humor here is that nobody in New York has ever seen or heard of an Australian before, and the Australian man has never experienced the city. What do you got? A recipe for comedy. Yep. Oil and water leads to knee slaps. (laughs) That whole section of the film. I mean, I get that they sold this on this fucking, you know, Outback Man in New York thing, but it's easily the less successful of the two halves of the film. Like when it's in Australia, the photography is better. It, it's just, it's fine to look at. Yeah. It's, it's working it all work right it. for me. And then we get to New York and this would be a fine 
sort of coda on the film. You know, we might have a brief thing where she leaves this other guy and we get that nice sappy end where he's like crowd surfing his way across the subway or whatever. Fine. You you can have two or three good jokes in there. You keep your, your iconic knife scene, obviously, and uh, we go home. The thing's uh, a cool 90 minutes. We're good to go. But instead, it just recycles the same variety of scenes over and over again. He goes to the bar like five fucking times. He goes to a hoity-toity party like five fucking times. It's like, enough! We understand! <laughs> the, the underlying, I mean, the, the underlying humor, I guess, of this whole thing is essentially that... Um, it's like, and it's a very kind of blue-collar masculinity concept. It's that Crocodile Dundee might be clueless about cultural differences, but he's, you know, he's kind of like a self-contained survival unit, so he'll be fine, and he's very common sense. Like, he survives in nature, so he has all of the basic real skills that a real man possesses. And then cities are just full of ridiculous people. Cities are full of just ridiculous people some of whom are gay and and that's just like and none of them have any practical skills whatsoever and he just kind of wanders through there and teaches them a lesson or or wows them by just being you know an incredibly self-sufficient guy who also frankly like isn't great at socializing like he, he just hits people at a moment's notice he's just carrying a weapon around he obviously does some terrible things to minority communities but it's all fine because he's like a really great, just, he's a great bloke. I need a running tally. We're starting a running tally here of how many times uh, Paul Hogan foils an attempted a mugging slash assault in a, in a city in these films. It's fucking absurd. I think there's... As opposed to perpetrating the assaults himself? I, I am counting... What's, what's his ratio? Out, you know? I'm counting two muggings and an assault in, in this one because there's the pimps that go after him. There is uh-huh. the soup can on the uh, purse snatcher and there is the that's not a knife. Well, then he's he's even then because he sexually assaults two women and then punches a guy in the face. So he breaks. Well, even, that's right? fine. Well, he can be a menace. I, I'm just taking umbrage <laughs> with the way that this is city life. This is city life. Every fucking three feet you walk, someone's like mugging. you. New York in the 80s, the baby. Con- yeah, yeah, I love the concept of this guy who's like a man's man in rugged outback Australia has never heard of prostitution. As if, yeah. you know, that isn't exactly the kind of thing that's going to be probably socially necessary in the outback just to keep, like along with alcohol, just to keep any sort of order on these things. It's funny watching this in light of like Australian movies, like particularly Wake in Fright and just movies that kind of like focus on the Australian outback, but on it basically being kind of a desolate, social, socially decayed space. Um, there's, a, there's a kangaroo hunting scene here that this almost seems like a counter to Wake and Fright, which is a great movie if anyone hasn't seen it, uh, but has like this absolutely horrific kangaroo hunting scene, and it's real-life kangaroo hunting. And they actually, weirdly within the film, the Australian... Like, it's so bad that the Australian... Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals asked them to leave in as much of the crocodile hunting scenes they'd recorded as possible just to show everyone how bad it was. That Australians were just going out getting hammered drunk and just blowing the shit out of kangaroos like for fun. And it was just a massacre. And it's, you know, terrible. And then this movie just has kind of the same thing. A couple of drunken Australians show up and they start shooting kangaroos and Crocodile Dundee shoots them instead, harmlessly, shoots their gun, shoots their searchlight, and scares them, and they all 
drive away and he like disguises a kangaroo or something for her and it's like a redressing of the balance so it's like this is it's like the the whole project is to kind of redress the australia that probably came through in the new australian cinema of the 70s um of which wake and fright would have been one of those films along with like picnic at hang rock and mad max particularly that all kind of portray australia as kind of barren and slightly dangerous or extremely dangerous um, and this is kind of like it is it's dangerous but it's fine because you know we handle ourselves and it's fun and it's great and you'll be you know you have a good time it's it's a really weird thing because the whole film just feels like an advertising campaign it really like it really does feel like it's just a tour de sport thing mm-hmm. um, and of course it's spun out into that yeah but i prefer very, his very work confusing. in the uh, outback uh, Subaru Outback commercials and Outback Steakhouse commercials. I think that's where he peaked artistically. Uh, also, Flipper, the movie from the mid-90s. Oh, Christ. <laughs> I mean, honestly, Crocodile Dundee and an Outback Steakhouse advert are effectively the same thing. Yeah, not much of a difference. Now, my que- I got one question left before we move on to the uh, wonderful Crocodile Dundee sequel. Uh, <laughs> yeah, fun fact for the listeners, this might be the high point of uh, today's podcast. We'll see. In terms I- of film so. quality. Yeah, uh, Jake, would you rather watch the 1997 uh, live-action Disney comedy slash uh, Tim Allen star vehicle, Jungle to Jungle, or would you rather watch Crocodile Dundee? Oh, God. Uh, uh, Why didn't we just watch Jungle to Jungle for this? I don't... <laughs> well, we also mentioned we didn't watch a Crocodile Hunter Collision Course or uh, whatever mm-hmm. that film is called. But uh, I mean, honestly, I would, I would just uh, Tim Allen is just so toxic. I would just take, uh, I'd take Crocodile Dundee, even though it's probably it's, the more problematic film. To to be fair, Steve Paul Hogan, and say what we like about him. So far as we know, he's not a fucking snitch. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's yeah. true. You didn't try yeah, to Tim set Allen's, up a drug dealer yeah. at the airport where there are cameras everywhere. Yeah, I don't, just, I don't hate this movie. I definitely would choose it over some fucking kitty Tim Allen movie because this is Jungle the Jungle is the same movie. Like, what's what's the difference here? So the, the well, it's okay, a child Tim Allen that he brings in the, the child. Yeah, it's a we child. don't want any it's fucking child. child. Yeah. That, that's closer yeah. to like Croc Three, where we get Mini Croc, and you're like, fucking get Give this the, kid off the goddamn yeah. screen. Oh, God. <laughs> if you had said any of the Dundee sequels, Steve, I might give pause and give it to Tim Allen. But if if it's just the okay. first Dundee proper, I'm going with that. Nine times out of ten. Yeah, I mean, the kindest I could say about Crocodile Dundee, the first one, which I do think is the high, high point of the series, is I think it is a, a bad movie, but it it seems to move along reasonably well. It, it doesn't... It's e- it's very easy to watch. I, yeah. I, the kindest thing I would say is I get it. I get why this was a hit. I, I get that it was... Like, I can feel the crowd-pleasing energy in portions of this film. It's it's incredibly problematic today, but I don't think it read that way in 1986. Probably not. No, not at all. Listen, one more hard sell on Jungle to Jungle. This is actually more... You guys ready for my big fan theory? People love this. We could put this on uh, film filmschoolrejects.com. Ready? Uh, somebody, somebody start transcribing this, and we'll see if we get an article out of it. So here's my theory. Uh, Lily Sobieski, this is her, her, I think it's like her earliest role is Jungle to Jungle. And she's like the, the daughter of, I think like someone, maybe Tim Allen's trying to bone or something. But anyways, the Tim Allen's son, Mimi Siku, the, the, the fucking kid, the crocodile Dundee child equivalent, he like falls in love with this girl and they're like, like just like child spooning in like a hammock or something, and like they're about to kiss, and then 
uh, I don't know, like Martin Short, who's who's Lily Sobieski's dad, sees this happening and then sends her off to like summer camp or something like that. Like just like, oh, you know, you can't be around him. Bye. You're going to do sex stuff with the Indian boy uh, who's played by a white kid. And so anyways, what I'm trying to get to is, is Jungle to Jungle a prequel to Eyes Wide Shut? which I think is probably the next movie that Lily Sobieski did. Is that really the next movie that Lily Sobieski did? I find that hard to believe. <laughs> I mean, Seems like a they're, specious they're probably claim. like a year apart. What Jungle Jungle came out in 97, Eyes Wide Shut 99. Yeah. Clearly a through line here where her, you know, she's she's just trying to embrace her sexuality. I This is where I come out with my my terrible uh, admission admission that I've actually uh, I have never seen Eyes Wide Shut, but I have seen the orgy scene on three separate occasions in three different people's houses while passing through. <laughs> See, prior to Eyes Wide Shut, we have Deep Impact and we have Never Been Kissed. Mm. Okay. And you don't Your think any of these exist in the same cinematic universe? You think they're all different movies? Uh, generally, that is the case, Steve. Yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm just throwing it out there. I mean, if it, so, if it saves us from going on a Crocodile Dundee 2, we, we can yeah. keep following this one. <laughs> is that, I just, is that I just need to hear that I'm not going to get like a check for $15 from, from Film School Rejects. Is that is that what you guys are telling me here? No, I think they'd still publish this. Okay, that's good. All right, good. Write it up. We're doing it. Okay, let's move on. Hey, did you know after Crocodile Dundee, they did another movie, and it was called Crocodile Dundee 2? It's great. The world's favorite adventurer is back for more. Mick! Yeah? You're back! Yeah? You're back! Yes, Bob. I missed you. Oh, no. That's all I took from the trailer. It's... <laughs> <laughs> And that, and that's the whole movie. So moving on. Yeah, it's uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's the same thing, but infinitely worse. It's uh, Paul Hogan looks older than he did before. Um, now he knows everyone in New York, and everyone knows him. So when he does things like, oh, isn't it funny when the crocodile man throws dynamite in <laughs> in the harbor in New York, what? and then the cops show up? Oh, it's just you, Crocky baby. It's fine. Don't worry this about it. My theory is that Crocodile Dundee two better illustrates the concept of white privilege than the Safdie brothers' good time. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Crocodile Dundee did 9-11. Yeah. yeah Crocodile, I mean, how do we know he didn't? Well, if they saw it was him, they would just kind of put their hands on their hips and go, oh, Mick. Because he yeah. seems to have evolved into like a Superman who can get away with anything, like illegally fishing yeah. in the East River or wherever he is in the beginning. And they say, oh, it's just Mick. He's just... He's having a laugh. Everybody carry on. Yeah, it's just it's just the one Australian in New York City just setting off high explosives <laughs> in the city limits. That's fine. Well, if he's Superman, we all know what his kryptonite is, right? The gays. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's afraid of the gays, which is reinforced in this movie. But OK, oh, so we know he, that we know that Crocodile Dundee didn't do 9-11 because he was in L.A. at the time. But. Um, do we know that he didn't do the World Trade Center bombing of 1993? I don't know. If he did do it, he did it by accident through just a series of, of delightful misunderstandings. Yeah, just a little old Australian whoopsie. I do think canonically he was he was in the outback at the time, unfortunately. Okay. Probably okay. so. So, so here, the Crocodile Dundee 2, what year, was this 89? When did this come out? Yeah, yeah. thereabouts. 89, okay, so... 88, I think, man, whatever. Oh, 88, okay, so like this is, to me... 
Right. As someone who didn't grow up in America, my memory, and I grew up, and just like the tail end of the 80s to the early 90s is really where it started to form my, you know, original impressions of like movies. That's when I started to watch and remember more films. And um, the, the main thing that just American media absolutely harped on throughout this period is just basically that South Americans are all vicious, slithering, coke-addled freaks. Mm-hmm. And what I think is really impressive is that like, Crocodile Dundee 2 gets in on this. This is a tent pole of the entire concept of this film is effectively <laughs> that Dundee gets wrapped up in the drug war. And I just, I cannot understand the pitch meeting that occurred to turn yeah. the happy-go-lucky idiot Australian man into like an arm of America's drug war against South America. It's yeah. a so, fascinating now, artifact, except this it's a terrible movie. movie. It introduces the Colombian drug cartel, like Coke Wars shit, very early on. And it, it leads to a kidnapping, which then kind of takes us into, after 30 minutes of just fucking around, it leads us to like 20 minutes of action rescue sequence. And then and then the movie basically comes to its logical conclusion. Like, we've completed our story arc here. And then you look and you're like, huh, it's only been 57 minutes. And wouldn't you know... <laughs> Crocodile Dundee 2 is like two hours long. And the last 51 minutes is they have to go into witness protection and go and go. So they go back to Walkabout Creek, Australia, which I think is kind of antithetical to the whole thing, because it's like what you, you're not supposed to go to. Places See, I don't think they lived. enter witness protection. I believe no, I believe Dundee there. declines it. He's like, I can yeah. do a better job myself. Do a better job. Yeah. <laughs> he wants, so they, he wants he goes his own down there. home turf to act as a level playing field against the drug dealers. So he they just exactly. go to Australia. Which is pretty insulting that these guys have been letting him away with like as we said, detonating explosives every other day and shit like this. And then suddenly as soon as the police like are like, We need to help you, he's like, nah, screw it, I'll just leave. Like, uh, very disrespectful. It, yeah, that's not, yeah, not good. So, <laughs> but but then the last hour or so of the movie, it's just Rambo First Blood, right? Like, he's just out in the wilderness setting traps for the Colombian drug cartel that has showed up in his, his backyard, and they're just running through the bush, and he's like, oh, look, this guy got caught in a trap, and he's dragged by a bull and all this other shit. I'm fully going to admit, okay, I mixed a really strong margarita before starting this movie and by about the 20 minute mark things were getting just a little wavy i kind of sobered up towards the last half hour or so (laughs) why the hell do these vicious drug lords bother following him to australia i know there's some photographs taken about a guy getting murdered but like they all already know he's a vicious drug lord that seems to be clear so wouldn't he just stay in south america and just be a drug lord okay so here well a he he doesn't seem to be living in south america he seems to have like a fucking like cartel compound in new york city for some reason in in long island right long island that's where the drug cartels hang out right yeah that that makes sense so i mean if we're gonna make a globetrotting movie why don't we set this in like fucking some like miami or something that might make sense where there would be some cartel compound and not new york city but Okay, nonetheless, the reason is more personal, I believe. I don't think that I don't think that Dundee and wife are necessarily like witnesses in a, a trial, which is again I don't know why they'd be offered witness protection, because the evidence mm. has been passed on. They're not really involved in the case. I think the cartel is pursuing them as a matter of uh 
pride as Dundee had embarrassed the uh, the head of the cartel, essentially. Right, yeah, that doesn't really... I mean, sure, but that just sounds like bullshit, frankly. <laughs> well, yeah. it's a really bad movie. And, per- and particularly <laughs> that the head of the drug cartel would, like, pick up the gun and head out to Australia. Also, if he's, like, the, he's on an FBI watch list, but he's able to fly to Australia to just, like, hang out there, like, he's... The whole thing just doesn't really make an enormous amount of sense. Um, yeah, did Mick have a passport yeah, it, it in the first movie? It makes perfect sense. Either. <laughs> he probably didn't. He probably just showed him. It's like, what's an airplane and fair dinkum? Uh, and they just let him on. They're like, oh, you wacky asshole, go. I usually ride dingoes, and now I'm riding the subway. Uh, okay, so... I. This this movie it's it's got at least um you know it's it's got character development it's got character arcs so in the beginning of the movie there's a guy that's about to commit suicide so crocodile Dundee um, goes out to help him and the guy uh, kind of offhandedly admits that he's gay and and had been in a, a, a breakup that drove him to want to jump off a building and when he and when he says that he's gay uh crocodile dundee is so shocked that he almost falls off the building and by the end you know through through his growth and development he's able to defeat an entire drug cartel single-handedly right i guess yeah. I, i'm not <laughs> sure how the two works? are connected <laughs> <laughs> that, that suicide sequence is terrible because oh, it, it's, it's so almost <laughs> it's almost like a a kind of a funny little set scene and, and almost kind of warm-hearted. You know, he like he wanders out and he's just very laid back and he's talking to the guy off the ledge and then he nearly falls off the building because he learns the guy is, of all things, gay. And again, it just goes back to this vision that, you know, you know that he's just a very regular down-to-earth guy and that everyone else in the city, and particularly just gay people, are, like, ridiculous. And it kind of speaks, I guess, to, like, you know, we also, but like, you know, I've met so many people over the years who were like, you know, I'm not homophobic. I think gays, you know, gay people should be able to just do whatever they like, just as long as, you know, they, you know, it's not my business, but you just keep, keep it, it in the themselves or whatever. And it's like, this movie is the absolute kind of pinnacle of that in that it's kind of like, you know, it, it understands like, I don't have a problem with gay people. They're just freaks, you know, and yeah. that's, that's, the that's, that's, the, that's it. That's what they do. Yeah, that's exactly it. Just like, yeah, I don't care about the gay. Just keep it. Keep it behind closed doors. I don't want to see your gay stuff. Why you got to do so much gay stuff in front of me? You make me feel things I don't want to feel like. It's, <laughs> I guess this movie, it pulls it pulls the magic trick of making you uh, thank God for this fucking forced nonsense plot line because before mm-hmm. it kicks in, holy shit, it's just some of the worst stuff. You got that ledge jumper stuff. You got the dynamite fishing. You got Mick like showing up in a playground and and recapping the first film and all of its hilarious one-liners to tiny children for some fucking reason. Yeah. One of whom is Tatiana Ali, which which was a surprise watching. I was like, oh, they're didn't know she was in here. Oh. This movie has a lot of that. It has young Luis Guzman. It has oh, the first, the, the first <laughs> film uh, role of Stephen Root uh, as one of the bumbling cops who Crocodile Dundee almost cuts the dick off of for some reason. That's a true. And, and for any Kerber enthusiasm fans, uh, Jeff Garland's wife Susie Elsman appears as a uh, as a sub or as a like I don't know she's giving like a New York tour through a subway station, which is a weird thing to start with. And then there's like a group of Japanese tourists who, of course, uh, take photos of everything, but also know martial arts uh, in another excellent sequence. 
that is timeless mm-hmm. and just oh, brings yeah, joy. that's not at all racist either. Jesus, this movie all. is uh, this movie fucking sucks. It's terrible. Like no, that's it's, it's really just it's one not. of those movies that even in, in 1988, I feel like felt kind of dated. It's just such yeah. a fucking mess, and their whole conceit with the script was, oh, we're gonna we're gonna mirror the first one, you know, we'll flip it. Now we'll go back to the outback for the back half, and it's like, okay, I I guess, but you, you know what it it's is? All, uh, yeah, what? It's a boomerang structure. The first film, oh. you start in Australia, you go to New York, there it is, and then you come go to you it. start in New York in the second one, and you bring it home to Australia. I figured Notably, it out. Uh, Crocodile Dundee never uses a boomerang. The only boomerang in any of these films is like a hood ornament that uh, yeah, fucking yeah, Reginald Bell antenna, Johnson yeah. chucks at a mucker. <laughs> um, the, oh, the ending, though, this is what baffles me. Is it, it does try to go for character development, at least teases it. They're like, oh, yeah, Mick's got to learn to depend on the people who care about him. Except... <laughs> The people who care about him, his old business partner and his not wife, I guess, uh, they decide that they need to go help him in the in the outback because the cartel's going to get the guy. And it turns out he would have just handled it just fine. And instead, because they decided to help him, they just shot him. His 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 business partner just shoots him. Uh, so I don't know what the lesson is supposed to be. You're sp- it seems like we're going okay. This. This tough loner's got to learn what family is. And instead, no. He, he was right all along. He's still the super best. And these bumbling people are just holding him back. Yeah. It's, it's, it, I don't know. This is like the, 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 the definition of an unnecessary sequel, which is funny because you look at Crocodile Dundee and you're like, oh, man, like this could have been a, a kid's cartoon. There could have been action figures. Like, I'm not saying there's potential for great art here, but there's potential for a lot of stuff that's more palatable than any of this. And yet what we get is the worst possible concoction that you could create for a sequel to Crocodile Dundee. Yeah, it's it's hard to to kind of reiterate for people who maybe haven't seen these or haven't seen these since they were kids. Um, like, Crocodile Dundee 2 is surprisingly bad like really even you know in that like 80s stupid big movie kind of thing it it is difficult to pay attention to it's difficult to like it just it's tedious in a way that kind of surprised me and um, this is worse than kind of your typical like it's not just an unnecessary sequel that just kind of glibly slides by and you're like i won't remember any of that it's like it makes you work to get through it um, I think, and like, I mean, I would say Crocodile Dundee 2 is the worst of all of the films we'll discuss tonight. Oh, for sure. For sure. I don't know. I, 3 is is bad in a, a totally different way, I guess, but it's up there. The, uh, certainly with the potential that this had to be a, a fine, fun film. And the fact that it made, it still made $240 million fucking dollars. <laughs> like, it's, yeah. just, it's just <laughs> oh, astounding. Oh, God. It's like <laughs> you, you kind of wonder why did uh, Los Angeles take so long to get there? I <laughs> know it waited way too long because that thing did not make two hundred forty million dollars. No, no, it's a real hot commodity. <laughs> well, let's uh, yeah, I mean, let's let's talk about Los Angeles. Uh, Crocodile Dundee three. Croc goes to L.A. Deep in the wilderness, there lives a man, a myth. A living legend. At least, most of the time. Where's your bike? 
Croc pulled it under. How big was it? That big. Could be worse, mate. God, Paul Hogan is so old in this. Jake, <laughs> what? what is this one, man? I, I My uh, brain turned to mush by the time I got to it. What is this? This is uh, striking while the iron is cold, uh, Steve. You know, <laughs> again, you make $240 million on an international blockbuster sequel from a hit sleeper film. What are you going to do? You're going to wait 11 years to 13 years to make a, a sequel? Yeah. And let's uh, so we'll, we'll do that and then we'll we'll relocate him again. Let's take him to Los Angeles where he can get into a bunch of crazy shit there. Although most of the time he's either on a movie set or in their fancy hotel room. But yeah, this is, that's that's what I really like about this movie. Uh, and when I say I really like, I just think it's it's incredible that it's just so this is your favorite one conceived. Um, no, no, it's not. Uh, that would go to the first one, which is also a bad movie, so here we are. <laughs> but, like, the first one, or the first two, I guess, at least understand, like, they go to New York and they do all the all the New York stuff. There's Times Square and the subway and the World Trade Center and the Empire State Building, a couple other things just show up around and they talk about the Big Apple and yada yada yada. This one, they go to Los Angeles and it's like... It, it feels like they don't know anything about Los Angeles. Nothing at all. There's no structure or job. For, like, even the establishment, like, let's go to Los Angeles. It's like a shot of, like, the downtown area, a couple of skyscrapers, and then it's just, like, a palm tree, and then it's just, like, a fucking subdivision housing estate. <laughs> and the show Randy's Donuts. That, just, and then after that, it's just, like, everything in Los Angeles is artificial and on a movie set, and that's that's Los Angeles. That's all it understands. There's, like, no conception of... Yeah, which which I think is kind of a funny running joke. Maybe in American media largely is that no one understands what Los Angeles actually is separate of its film culture. There's, no, there's no, I, like I don't know, Jack. I disagree because in my experience uh, from from spending time in Los Angeles, it's it's just a lot of guys in suits talking to me about how they give themselves like colon cleanses with coffee. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's it. It's all struggling. Like they have, they have the. I guess they have the limo driver who's actually a, a you know a wannabe actor and gives him his you know gives him a, a whatever a, his his head headshot shot yeah. and, and and Dundee reciprocates by giving him a, show, a photo of him and his kid because he has a bunch of them for some reason to hand out to everyone, which I don't even understand how that joke works. Um, it does. Yeah, it's it's you know yeah they're fair. Yeah, and again. For this one, many years later, it, it's just like he fights crime again. There's, there's this. I, what I do like about this, is, okay, so the through line of this film essentially is that Dundee wants to go out to Los Angeles, and he has a kid now, and they basically they want to move from. They start in Australia, and then they go to Los Angeles because Dundee, being a good a good parent, wants his son to have the opportunity to either grow up to be like him. Uh, basically, a just raging transphobe who murders animals. Or he could just be uh, the uh, a newspaper publishing magnate because his grandfather still owns a newspaper and nepotism is very real and, and very fine and as good a thing as any. So he decides, you know, we should go to Los Angeles so he can learn well, the business, uh, which I don't know what... I mean, isn't it uh, that Sue, his... Uh, they're still not married, by the way, in this film, even though they've been together no. for no. 15 plus years. Uh, she gets a business opportunity to work at a Los Angeles paper because the old person was murdered, uh, which mm -hmm. ties into the plot later. And then it doesn't Mick and the son just kind of 
tag along to go to LA and that's well, well there, there's a discussion there where, where Mick says he's okay with going to LA because he wants his son to have to understand those elements you know it's it's like yeah. it's I mean nothing here is very well developed but it's kind of like that's the idea basically is that his son can you know absorb American culture and then choose which one he prefers because he's been brought up in Australia so basically just hangs out with all of Mick Dundee's drunken friends mm. All day and and says stupid shit. Uh, I'm pretty. Is the kid even? I didn't check. Is the kid the god even Australian? I don't, I don't think not, so. I don't. I don't think he's got he some is. ridiculous fucking name. I don't think his, name, his name, is name is Serge yes. Cockburn. <laughs> <laughs> of course, that's not a real uh, of name. the of the Sydney Cockburns. But um, yeah. So so anyway, they they go to <laughs> L.A. and basically, as Jake alludes to, there was a murder, and it turns out that there's. In, in, and I feel like this is, this is like the closest thing the film actually gets to any kind of like a, a an insight or any kind of content. There's basically a plot uncovered that there's a movie studio that's churning out shitty sequels no one wants, and they're actually a front for stealing paintings. And they basically they disguise their paintings as props, and then they they burn the props in quotation, but they're actually they're burning fake paintings and bringing the real paintings mm. and swapping them out and that's how they're covering their tracks and it's it's nonsensical but i just do like the idea that this film highlights the idea of making a sequel that no one wants uh and that they bring that to the forefront in a crocodile dundee movie made in the year of our lord 2001 is just a phenomenal piece of either, you know, kind of acknowledging where we are in the world or just short-sightedness on the part of the writer's room that they just don't really even notice. <laughs> yeah, they're just like, ah, good thing we're not Lethal Weapon 3, huh? <laughs> oh, that would be shitty. Uh, you're worse. <laughs> Le- Sorry. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even want to conceive of this writing room. I, uh, this is reminding <laughs> me that we skipped a key plot element in, in 2. I mean, it's not a key plot element because it comes to nothing. But all of a sudden... Uh, they write it as a script that, that Dundee owns like fucking thousands of miles of property in Australia and a gold mm-hmm. mine. <laughs> gold mine, yep. He owns a yeah, gold everyone's mine. Everyone's rich in spirit, Adam. I mean, that's kind of how it works. There's a ton you know? of shit in two that is just like the audacity of that script is incredible. Like there's that the other scene where okay, he needs to rescue his girlfriend from the drug cartel in the Long Island mansion. Great. So his friend, Leroy Brown, who isn't a drug dealer, he just sells stationery, says that he knows some bad dudes. And so they go to some punk rock club. And then rightfully, the punk rock people are like, well, this sounds really dangerous. Why should we help you? And Crocodile Dundee's basically like, well, it'd be cool. (laughs) That's it. They're like, yeah, it would be cool. Let's go do shit with the crocodile man. Real punks like to take America's side in the drug war. That's what it's yeah, all about. Yeah, that's that's the most punk thing you can possibly do. Punk to to back up the CIA and and so on and so forth. <laughs> so he goes from a a bushman to suddenly a, a vast landowner and uh, a presumably millionaire owning the gold mine and what have you, uh, to now, yeah. in this third movie, he's suddenly living seemingly uh, the same sort of hard scrabble life, except his house is gigantic and uh, 
Well, he doesn't understand what money is. We clearly, I think yeah. it's really funny that he. We, we learn that he owns a load of land, and it's like again his relationship with the Aborigines is like, oh, this dude owns large chunks of Australia, uh, which famously a land that you know white people own. Yeah, the great, whole first movie. Guys. I think the first movie had like some ambition toward how it was portraying uh, Aborigines, and I, I mean they dress like way more authentically. He has this whole speech about how no one owns land and blah blah blah, and then in the second one, it's just all cast aside. Every, all of a sudden, anytime a Aborigine appears in these movies after the first movie, they're wearing like loin cloths. And uh, yeah, he he suddenly owns half of fucking Australia for some reason. <laughs> and that, the third movie though is is so perplexing to me where we start because all of a sudden he's just a croc hunter. He like he's fucking Steve Irwin or something. Like that's never mm-hmm. been his job. That's not what he fucking is. All of a sudden he's just the world's best croc hunter. It's like why what. Why did you even fucking watch your own fucking movies before you wrote this? <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think that he did actually. <laughs> to be fair, why would you? <laughs> no, there's no reason. I can't think of a good reason to. Well, you know, I know we're kind of hard here on, on Crocodile Dundee three, but um, strangely, Roger Ebert didn't hate it. <laughs> so he's this great quote because <laughs> I was I was looking up reviews on this because I was like, I wonder how people absorbed crocodile dundee 3 because the first two you know the first one is just like ooh exotic the second one you're still riding high on the croc fumes but by the time you get here you'd be like man everybody had to hate this but that wasn't the case so ebert said it may not be brilliant but who would you rather your kids took as a role model crocodile dundee david spade or tom green it is a melancholy milestone in our society when parents pray, please, God, let my child grow up to admire a crocodile wrestler. But there you have it. I don't know. I mean, what gives you better it's, life lessons? The work of Crocodile Dundee or Freddie Got Fingered? I'm going to go with Freddie Got Fingered. I mean, to be fair, he, he, crocodile wrestling is the least problematic part of the yes. Dundee character. That's, that's, I mean, yes. he's a racist homophobe like who just walks around socking people in the face all the time he just punches people whenever they disagree with him (laughs) and stealing gold mines from native australian (laughs) people (laughs) it's normal cool crack hunter stuff but (sighs) this is funny too because it plays into like the last decade or so of of ebert's life um he had this weird vendetta against freddie got fingered like anytime he would pan a movie, he'd be like, "At least it didn't star Tom Green, that sick skateboarding shit." He just would get really mad. And then to a lesser degree, he hated David Spade specifically. Um, Joe Dirt, he didn't like. Which Joe Dirt is the same thing as Crocodile Dundee, but with a like a, a hillbilly redneck guy. They're basically, honestly, I, I haven't seen years. I'm gonna go on record and reckon that Joe Dirt is better than any of the Crocodile Dundee yeah. movies. Yeah, all, all Joe Dirt is is like it's basically redneck Crocodile Dundee with like plot elements directly stolen from like uh, Forrest Gump. That's that's pretty much the whole thing. Um, also, yeah, Freddy Got Fingered probably a thousand times better than any Crocodile Dundee movie. Certainly more interesting. Like if you if you search through and I would encourage anyone listening to go and do this, um, just like search for Roger Ebert's through his reviews and just search for like mentions of Tom Green or Freddie Got Fingered. And he just flips the fuck out every, all the time, just constantly <laughs> for basically a decade. He's mad at Tom Green, which is pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. My last question on this one before we move on to the fourth movie is 
Jake, you're kind of our, our uh, you're our LA guy. You're our, our West Coast correspondent. Yeah, sure. How many times have you encountered Mike Tyson doing like uh, like meditation in the park? Oh man, I had to move because I I just kept running into him. It was it was insane how often he pops mm-hmm. up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love this joke. Just the way that one aged with with Dundee saying that person wouldn't hurt a fly. He seems like a really nice guy, and it's like the joke <laughs> is clearly that he's a boxer, but that Dundee doesn't know that. But <laughs> guess what? Mike Tyson being a boxer is also probably the least problematic part about him too. So <laughs> that's it's fair perfect. Enough. It's perfect. Oh, this no. movie really wastes its like uh, prestige TV superstar cast here with. Janice Soprano really goes away immediately. Fucking mm-hmm. Mike the Cleaner is doing like the Earth's worst like Polish accent or something. <laughs> and uh, yeah, when Duffy from Justified also just boring, oh. boring fucking this is, villain. It's the it's the Sopranos Justified crossover event that we all wanted but never got. We don't deserve it to be honest. And it's it's and still I will you know I, my my general summation of this is that this movie I it's less painful to me than two because it's just a little shorter and it is. It feels a little more unpredictable in large part because the film doesn't... I don't think they really understood what they were doing here. Like the L.A. integration really just... They don't know what's happening. So the film just feels a little bit more untethered, which means it's not a good movie at all, but it just felt a little bit more like I legitimately have no fucking clue what will happen next. Mm-hmm. I think I might hate this one the most because A, <laughs> small small child Croc Jr., fuck that, get out of here. B... Any, like, interesting aspect of Paul Hogan's, like, physicality in the performance, it's long gone here. He's just fucking oh, grandpa daughter. You want to talk about mouth. physicality? The only thing he's doing these <laughs> days is laying down pipe because there is, like, no less than, like, three or four women who are in their 20s who just want to shack up with yeah. 65-year-old Paul Hogan. <laughs> I, I mean, it's so it's so bad in this movie. They literally introduce a new, younger crocodile hunter to be his like accomplice, who, as mm-hmm. far as I recall, does not appear in any of the previous movies. I don't. Apparently, remember his the face. actor is in too, but as a different character. Yeah, he was one of the bounty hunters oh. with the villains in the second half of two. Uh, who he gets like tied <laughs> up, but yeah, I was wondering why they brought him back to play a completely different character and an ally, no less. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's, that's uh, you great. could tell a lot of people died too. Like the, his uh, his business partner guy, uh, Wally, from died the first two six movies, months dies. after. Yeah, yeah, right after out. two. <laughs> and obviously, the the woman who runs the bar must have died as well because all of a sudden, Big Donk gets himself a promotion and owns the bar. Yeah, Donk and Nugget mm-hmm. come back. We love those characters. Ah, uh, yes. Ah, uh, <laughs> yes. Living the for classics. the Donk, living for the Nugget. And the third reason why I think this is probably objectively the worst is because there's a fucking scene where they just like, what do you know about L.A.? We're making an L.A. movie. What should we reference? Traffic, right? So there's a huge traffic jam because he and his son spin out on the highway in order to uh, get a skunk off the shoulder of the highway. It's just and it goes on and on and on. And it's just so fucking painful to watch. Mm hmm. I, I mean, sure, I, I I will accept all that. I'm just saying I feel like, duh, like, I just like there's elements in this that are just more confusing in terms of, like, the movie set and just how all that integrates and using props. Like, it, at, at, towards the end, it starts turning into, like, a weird, like, FX thriller 
where he's like starting to use movie props against his enemies while they chase him through the back lots of Los Angeles, which apparently mm. is just a giant movie studio. Oh, and he gets mugged again in this one. Uh, twice, I think. Twice, <laughs> twice. Twice. Yeah. He gets mugged by a bunch of guys who literally in in fine LA form do a drive-by mugging. They just pull a car out of an alley, a very conspicuous car, and then like hold, hold a gun at him. Uh, I, I just one of the world's laziest muggers and I'm just wondering what happens after that do they reverse back into the alley they're like they're like a trapdoor spider from Australia itself <laughs> they just lunge out and grab their prey and then just move back in again I, it's very stupid and this I kind of like this movie because it's just uh, sorry I think this movie is better than two <laughs> I, say, I do not your like it it sucks <laughs> very careful with my wording here but I kind of I think it's just less uh, abrasive because it's just more notably stupid at all times it mm -hmm. just confuses me there's just points in the movie where i'm like how did we get here again and you know i, I guess it's something that's the best i can that's the kindest i can say you know you probably thought uh once paul hogan hit his 60s and they did crocodile dundee in los angeles you probably thought well that's that's the end of the crocodile dundee saga and uh, we will not need to see Paul Hogan reprise that in any way, shape, or form ever again. And maybe one day they'll reboot it, but that's a problem for another day. And uh, to you, I say, unfortunately, you're wrong. And so we have Jake's favorite film of 2020, the excellent Mr. Dundee. In the 80s, he was a national treasure. That's a lot. Rising to international stardom. One word. Hugs. And then he was gone. Yep, that's it. So, <laughs> I fucking wish he was gone. Go the fuck away, man. Steve, you should you should just play oh, the curb your enthusiasm music over. I the thought rest about of it. it. I think Larry David might have a lawsuit <laughs> on his hands. This is yeah. This is absolute. It's sad, honestly, because I mentioned before that while Paul Hogan is not a, a masterful actor, he's got this likability to him. It's not even charisma. You're just like oh, you know. And now that he's He's always looked like he was a thousand years old, but now he officially looks like he's a thousand and one. He's he's like in his eighties. Yeah, in this movie, he looks like he's Kirk really, Douglas now. Exactly, it, just really old, like that fragile, like someone's gonna sneeze and Grandpa's gonna turn into a pile of dust type of shit. And so, when you see him, he's he's doing all these like Larry David Kirby enthusiasm esque things. But the thing is, is Larry David is an asshole. And we laugh, we laugh at him and we laugh with him, but you know that he's a dick and that's why it's, it's funny. And he always kind of gets his comeuppance at the end. And here it's like, it's just like bumbling, wholesome grandpa in Curb Your Enthusiasm-esque scenarios where he's not necessarily to blame for any of the things that happened to him. And it's, it's almost too saccharine and good-natured for its own good. But it does have Reginald Vell Johnson, so that's something. Oh, the, I mean, cast, the, the cameos are great. That, the cameos are good. The rest of the movie. Yeah. And it seems like a labor of love, too, because, I mean, there's legit people doing cameos in this movie. And you get Olivia Newton-John even has, like, a, a legit, like, role in the film. And uh, you got the aforementioned Reginald Val Johnson. And there's just a bunch of people. Anyone with the exception of, like, Mel Gibson... Although there's some Mel footage, but it seems like they just doctored it oh, from the existing that's fucking yeah, footage. <laughs> yeah, that's not footage. Around. But the 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 point is it seems like they really like cared about this and tried to make it something and it's just it's so cheap and shoddy and and doesn't hit the mark and it's almost sad that it's bad <laughs> like i want this to be so much better 
this is key nursing home cinema. Like, it's <laughs> just, it's, oh, like, it literally, it's the same thing as, like, those movies where, like, Judy Dench finds her mojo. It's oh, the yeah. same Oh, yeah, and Crocodile Dundee fucking... enters the best exotic Marigold Hotel. Yeah, yeah, like, it, it's Paul <laughs> Hogan hanging out. Like, he goes joyriding with John Cleese. Yeah. Ah, uh, oh, John <sighs> Cleese, Jesus. Just a bunch of old people. And then I, I did wonder why, uh, you know, why does this movie exist, frankly? This is made in 2020. He was 80 years old, mm-hmm. on around 80 to 81. Why does this exist? And then again, I refer back to Wikipedia, and I realize that really the almost the longest section of his Wikipedia article is called Tax Problems. And I think <laughs> that might explain everything we like he didn't pay him is film. that <laughs> wait didn't he win his his protracted legal case against the australian government i think i think he beat the tax fraud charges oh maybe eventually he likened the australian tax office to the taliban yeah so. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah so so the whole premise of this is paul hogan is gonna get knighted or something and also there's a movie studio that wants to make a Crocodile Dundee like reboot sequel of sorts. And he Crocodile Dundee gets canceled, but not really because he, uh, the the studio wants to uh, make Crocodile Dundee with Will Smith. And then Paul Hogan's like, Oh no, that wouldn't work because he's black and I'm not. Well, they want Will Smith to play his adult son. His yeah. adult son. Yeah. There you go. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. This one, I, I just watched it like three hours ago, and I'm still like, I don't I don't really know what happened through most of this. Um, but he does that, and then there's another gag where he's supposed to go to some fundraiser, and he, he thinks it's for, like, dying children, but it's actually, like, the Black Excellence Awards or something, and he walks on the red carpet and is just like, oh, I'm just here to help unfortunate people, you know? People who need help, and... The, you know, no good and blah, blah. The, the whole thing feels like, you know, answering to charges of racism in all his previous work. And it's like, I can't be race. I'm just a bumbling old, you know, yeah. happy living fella. And it's, I just it's made a whoopsie. Tremendously and convincing. Yeah. Okay. We, we get it. Like you, you are naturally affable and misunderstood and it was a different time. And it's not like, like literally no one cares. Right. I, I can't I can't emphasize that enough that like when when people seem to think that there's just an entire generation that's like rising up to cancel Crocodile Dundee or whatever. It's like not literally no one gives a shit. So you watch this <laughs> now. You're like, oh, fuck. That was that was a poor taste. But like, I, I, I'm not going to lose sleep over the fact that like, yeah, Crocodile Dundee sexually assaulted a woman on screen in 1986 and a bunch of people laughed at it. Like, yeah, that's fucked up. But the guy's 80 no one gives a shit like paul hogan doesn't have a fucking career he's not like cashing paychecks for that at this point i don't think that he didn't already pay to the australian government for tax fraud so no one's bending over backwards to cancel paul hogan but this whole the, the whole thrust of this movie is yeah it's like a curb your enthusiasm situation but like jack said we're, we're just supposed to forgive the fact that he made some missteps in his prior films because he's a bumbling old man and that's it. It's like, no, you, you, you made poor taste shithead jokes, but they're old and no one gives a fuck about you. So you can just die and people will probably do a memoriam thing at, at the Oscars. And that's it. Like that, who fucking cares? Right. The, the grandest, most confusing part of this whole movie is the fact that it's like, just like 10% of the entire movie is like made up, like entertainment, like E 
celebrity network footage of people giving a shit about Paul Hogan. Yeah. Yeah. Which it would never happen. No. Like never. Paul Hogan doesn't need to be canceled because he has systematically canceled himself over the last 30 years. Like who the fuck? You can't cancel <laughs> you something that's Crocodile irrelevant. Dundee. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's it. He's embarrassed himself to the highest degree. What, what can we do to Paul Hogan at this point? <laughs> it's not like he's high on the hog here. Like Jesus. I don't know, but um, this is, it's its not a total catastrophe, and it's its just, like I said, it's too saccharine, it's not as funny as, I, it's, as it thinks it is, and its entire premise from the beginning is kind of just flawed. It's, if anything, it's sad. Um, yeah, even this as, is like, it's like, what? It's not even 90 minutes, and it still feels like it double the length it can sustain. There's, just, there's a chase scene, like, about 50 mm-hmm. minutes into this movie, which is interminable. And it's John Cleese and Hogan and this uh, paparazzi guy who keeps tagging along. And that asshole just won't stop fucking screeching. And it just is, it's a nightmare to sit through. I, this is my least favorite film for that reason alone. I wanted to kick this movie down the stairs and collect the inheritance. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it is it, uh, definitely, it's not a good movie. I kind of... The only thing that kind of keeps this one along is that there's uh, two things, I guess. Firstly, there's a lot of celebrity cameos, and it's just sort of like you just never know what will happen next or who will pop up, and it's kind of like that's enough to at least inject some. Like, I had to keep looking at the screen. Um, Beyond that, though, it, it does feel interminable for long periods because it has that kind of element of having no real structure. It's all over the place in terms of event and, and kind of where it goes. There's no overarching kind of like narrative to join scenes it's it seems like it's largely just kind of comprised of like wouldn't it be funny if you know it's it's got a kind of a sketch comedy feel and then after that everyone in it is like like jake says like screeching like everyone is like dialed up to 11 no one is like Mm -hmm. underselling their performance here like everyone is like basically like it's a big panto and everyone is just like just running around the place like going isn't this wacky what we're doing and it really is a, just a very tiring film. It's exhausting to watch this movie. Yeah. yeah, there are very there are a few gags that work, but most of them just don't. And yeah, like you guys are saying, everyone is dialed up except for the celebrities themselves. So so when you get Wayne Knight popping in, his segment might not be like especially funny, but it's still like fine to watch. It's like hey, Wayne Knight, good to see you. And I, I suppose mm-hmm. the Chevy Chase one might be the most successful, like purely on a from a comedy standpoint. Like some of the jokes are funny, ish. Like the gag about him winning an Oscar, I was like, eh, yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of well, it's believable too because he's an asshole in the movie, and by all accounts, he's he's a total asshole. So it just well, kind of like is that the fits. through line? <laughs> like, are these like people who? would be canceled if anyone gave a shit to re-examine because <laughs> isn't john cleese also quite a problematic sort reginald vel johnson is pure you can't cancel him vel no, johnson yeah i don't think so. and wayne knight are in the clear but i think cleese has some skeletons alongside yeah, chevy cleese chase is a piece of shit yeah, yeah, yeah cleese does something chevy stupid chase every is. time he he logs onto twitter like you can't <laughs> here's here's what also irks me is that yeah there's a lot of cameos but even worse is that there's a lot of name drops in this movie and I don't, and they're often mm-hmm. just kind of used as punchlines. I don't think there's anything funnier than a name drop. And it also comes at like the worst one, I think comes at the height of the chase scene where they hit somebody on the freeway and they look at each other and go, Oh no, I think that was Harvey Weinstein. 
who's the king of canceled people. It's just terrible. And it, that yeah. is preceded immediately when when they quote unquote run down Harvey Weinstein. It is preceded by a fucking Wilhelm scream. I thought that might be <laughs> the hackiest joke I've ever seen in a movie, frankly. Yeah. What, you know, is there nothing pure in all of this than, you know, uh, just just letting them go with this, that, like, the people who scream the most about being cancelled are actually not cancelled because no one actually gives a shit about them or it's impossible to cancel them. Mm-hmm. And this just is... The, the, the whole film is kind of a, a wonderful tribute towards that kind of misguidedness. It just It's ridiculous. You're looking at it kind of just going, like, who could care less about this? Like, what the hell is even happening here? Yeah. Paul Hogan was so cancelled that he made a, a fourth Crocodile Hunter. <laughs> yeah, on top of the fact that, like, a running joke in this movie is that Crocodile Dundee 3 is so bad, no one remembers it. And it's like, yeah. okay, fair enough, that's a joke. Now, why are you making this movie? <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know what this reminds me of? Uh, and this kind of speaks to the same level of quality, but uh, do you guys remember the hit 2003 film, Pauly Shore is Dead? Oh, never saw it. Never, sure. Yeah, well, that's the correct response, but... It's, uh, yeah. it's, it's really, it's, it's the same vibe here. It's kind of Well, don't they have a Paulie Shore joke in here where he's back? He, like, makes a successful return. That's mm-hmm. another one their name drops. Oh, yeah, he's, a, yeah. he's the it's, king of it's Hollywood. It's funny, Paulie Shore's back. With, yeah, yeah, with Son-in-Law 2 or something, and he's like, he's back. Some... Yeah, I don't recall that at all. This movie must have broke me at some point. I think any time, <laughs> like, the, the fucking Entertainment Tonight screen popped out, I'm like, all right, I don't want to fucking watch this anymore. <laughs> why does i i think i think son-in-law too would work though like what if what if paulie shore made father-in-law now but he's he's like the wacky father-in-law you see there's, there's there's a <laughs> there's a way for him to revive the career <laughs> sure yeah it's it's only like the fourth best paulie shore movie a couple of years back he's on a tv show and he was just playing himself but like a whacked out version of himself what show was that? I don't remember. I don't, he's pretty big on cameo. Like if you pay Pauly Shore two hundred dollars, he'll shill anything for you. So something to think about. That's so we, we got to save up all of our Patreon money for that. The other thing that almost works about this and is not utilized at all, and again, I guess it factors into the end of the film, which I just I I could not talk about saccharin. It just takes like fucking an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm and all of a sudden it turns into like once or something. I'm like, what is this fucking... Oh, the Fosse musical at the end during the dream sequence? <laughs> we get folk montage of Paul Hogan skipping all these events and uh, instead going to see his granddaughter and it's like the most painful fucking thing I've ever seen. It, it fucking sucks. It's so goddamn hokey. And... uh yeah, but one of the things he's skipping is is one of the more successful elements of the film, which, again, you, you've, you've stolen from Larry David, but the Crocodile Dundee musical is one of the very few jokes mm-hmm. that actually hits in this. Yep. Yeah, I, I would say that is absolutely, like, the only section of this movie where I was actually, like, in, you know, oh, happy to be here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I would love to see a Crocodile Dundee Fosse musical. Like, I would, I, I want the jazz hands, I want the, the, the chorus lines, everything. Give it to me. I would pay good money to watch that. Uh, certainly would watch that before I'd watch any of these movies again. So, all right. Well, I, I think that pretty much wraps it up. Uh, really productive. I'm sure you guys enjoyed, you know, this whole week. It's, it's been good for you. A lot, of, a lot of great stuff on your TV screen. We do it for our fans. Um, that's right. We do. We, we are men of the people. That's that's exactly it. So, uh, you know, this week I'm going to have you guys put something over. But 
uh, if you have a special message to send to uh, our, our fan, Dustin, who, who wanted us to do the Crocodile Dundee series, go ahead and, and put something over and then attach a nice little message for Dustin. So, uh, Jack, go ahead. What are you putting over this week? Okay, I, I'm going to put over a early 90s movie called Arcade, directed by Albert Pyun, who I think will feature in some subsequent episodes where we're going to be Entering the Puniverse, uh, it's a, <laughs> hard to describe this movie. I really enjoyed it. It's essentially, imagine an R-rated episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? That's literally the movie. It's got this very weird vibe. Um, starring Ralphie from A Christmas Story, among several other people you might recognize from other TV shows. It's basically about a very addictive video game, a virtual reality video game, and all the kids are getting hooked on, and it turns out it's actually malevolent. Um... And it uh, was delayed, its release was delayed for several years because Disney threatened to sue them. It's even in the early 90s, Disney were still Disney. Um, very goofy, silly movie, quite a lot of fun. Just almost smart enough to make you, you know, to kind of make you think, but then not really so smart that you would feel that you really have to dedicate too much time to it. Kind of a perfect, perfect way to spend your time. Um, so I'm putting over Arcade by Albert Pyun. And as a message, Dustin, fuck you. <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Uh, Myros, what are you putting over? <laughs> I, I got nothing to put over. I'm, I'm sitting here. I'm filling out fucking uh, college applications all the live long day. I'm, I'm going to put over the University of Michigan uh, LSA uh, school. Just, you know, it's a great school. <laughs> Let me in. Uh <laughs> Uh, as for Dustin, you know, we have a, we have a tier for people who, who would like to dictate content. So, uh, consider this, uh, a bill, you know, you owe us oh, $25, motherfucker. Yeah, there you go. Can, right. we, can we, like, add an extra tier where it's, like, $2 more and I won't tell whoever does it to, to fuck themselves? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you pay if you pay uh, twenty seven instead of twenty five dollars, you can you can dictate a movie that we watch, and we won't roast your ass on air if it's terrible. Um, <laughs> Jake, what are you putting over this week? Yeah, so uh, my put over uh, has been a long time coming, but now I can officially endorse this. Uh, back in August of twenty twenty, I made a purchase from a website called Hong Kong Rescue uh, for two films. Uh, Hard Boiled by John Woo and Peking Opera, Blue, Opera Blues by Sui Hark. And uh, they finally arrived early January. And uh, if you don't know what Hong Kong Rescue is, they are, uh, well, it's basically just one guy who lovingly restores Hong Kong movies out of the comfort of his own apartment in Portland, Oregon. Uh, sometimes he gets access to film prints. Sometimes he takes all versions available and puts them together and he does color correction and make sure that these films basically look the best they can be. He also takes every source available and extracts all audio tracks so that and all uh, subtitles so that basically you have the most complete film version of these movies available. Uh, and along with the two I've mentioned, he's done several films by Jackie Chan. Uh, at the time of this recording, he's currently putting the finishing touches on The Killer by John Woo, which he hopes to, well, he said to drop at the end of this month, which is today when we're recording, so hopefully that'll be out soon. And he's got many other great ones in the pipeline that he's been working on. But uh, not only that, he also collects every bonus feature from every edition you can find of these movies. He basically makes the greatest package ever for each of these Hong Kong movies. And you might be asking yourself, well, this probably costs a fortune, like maybe $80 per film. How? What are you, what are you paying here? And 
The answer is no. It's actually $16 per movie if you want to get it on Blu-ray and uh, $8 if you want to just get a digital version to stream online. Uh, the only word of warning is, as I mentioned, it would take about, uh, well, I don't know how, he says he's improved his system, but it did take me five months to receive the movies I ordered last year. Uh, but get them eventually. <laughs> uh, you get them eventually, and now that I have watched both films, I can wholeheartedly heartedly recommend Hong Kong Rescue. So check them out and uh, support them so we can get more good stuff coming soon. Sounds good. You got anything to say to Dustin? Yeah, Dustin, I want you to watch uh, all four of these movies in uh, no less than 24 hours and uh, give us your complete thoughts in a written 2,000-word essay on each film. Mm. Uh, that'll be 8,000 words total. And uh, send that our way, and we will read it on the air. Yeah, and uh, we'll publish it on Film School Rejects and pocket the uh, $30 they give us for those articles. So, uh, uh, Steve, before we wrap, yeah. uh, I just want to mention we forgot one, one important aspect of uh, the very not-so-excellent Mr. Dundee. Uh, uh-huh. at, the, at the end of the film, a woman 20 years younger than him uh, falls in love with him because he's still a, you know, the pinnacle of, of sex appeal. It's important that we note that. That's right. His little wallaby still works. You know that. <laughs> That's that is the perfect way for him to end his career. It's just that's that's the life that he lives. Uh, all right. Well, I'm gonna put over. Uh, I'm gonna put over some music. There's a band called Shame, and they got a new album out called Drunk Tank Pink, and it's really good. If you like uh, kind of anxious sounding post punk, uh, Jack, I think you'd be into this one. It's uh, it's a great album. It's the best thing I've heard so far this year. I know we're a month into the year. Come on, but uh, it's it's really good. So Shame. Something Dustin Zick should be feeling right now. And, uh, you know, that's that's pretty much it. So if you enjoyed today's episode, please do us a big favor. There is a, a couple of links in the description. And uh, first link will take you to our iTunes page. Why is that important to you, dear listener? Good question. Uh, well, when you're there, there's a couple of things you can do. You can rate us, which, you know, just give us like five stars or whatever. And that's an easy thing to do. But there's another little button right below that says write a review. And here's what you need to do. Hit the five stars. You did that already. That took a half a second. Now in the reviews, um, you know, you can write whatever you want. Just write, you know, uh, Paul Hogan's a fucking loser. That's a mean thing to say to an 80 year old, but I think he can handle it. Write whatever you want. It doesn't matter. Just write something. And the reason you need to do that is because iTunes has a complex algorithm that for some reason favors written reviews over just star ratings and blah, 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 blah. You doing a written review, it helps us get more visibility on iTunes. So please take two seconds and do that. The other link will take you to our Patreon page. And, uh, you know, if, if you become a patron of Optimism Vaccine, you too can dictate content because if you do that $20, $25, 20-something dollar tier, what that does is that gives you the power to dictate and say, you have to do this, Optimism Vaccine. You have to watch this movie. Now, uh, Dustin, who suggested Crocodile Dundee, he, he was not at that tier. He just, he just suggested, he just recommended it. And I, being the fool that I am, so I'm going to take some of, of the responsibility for this, I said, you know, that sounds fun. I enjoyed those films, and then we all kind of agreed to it, and here we are. So, But if you want to dictate, and it could be anything, you could say, hey, here's, here's $25, uh, watch the entirety of Empire, and then talk about it for two hours. Well, I guess we'll do it, sure. Why not? We could do that. It's an option. So, yeah, if, if you don't have that much money, you can donate just a, a couple bucks, and that'll get you into uh, our all of our paid content. So we have brand new podcasts that are only available to Patreon subscribers, 
and we have all kinds of past pay- podcasts and written content, all kinds of good shit. So if you got a couple bucks, throw them our way. If you don't, that's cool. Well, I understand. Tough times, but you know, podcasting's expensive. So with that, if you have any questions, comments, death threats, marriage proposals, um, optimismvaccine@gmail.com. Adam Myros standing by, hitting refresh on the inbox, or you can tweet at us at Optimism Vaccine. And yeah, that'd be cool. Go ahead, tell us we're idiots. Uh, Jake, last words yours. Yeah, the way, Dobie.